This is They Create Worlds, episode 82, an unlikely pairing of Sillywood. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. We now get to delve into the fun time where we had games that were fantastic because all they were were just a series of full motion videos that you clicked on and they wanted you to pay $80 for them. Well, it was the state of the art at the time. Movies that are interactive, Jeff. Movies that you can control. You are the star, along with random actor chosen to be on the screen. You control Luke Skywalker, except he's not Luke Skywalker, but he's Mark Hamill, which is like Luke Skywalker. Well, only if he's voiced by Mark Hamill. He wasn't voiced by Mark Hamill. He was Mark Hamill walking around on the screen. Fine. But those are the good ones. The ones we actually liked, like Wing Commander. <laughs> I'm thinking of the horrible ones, like that cowboy game where... You arrive at the place, people challenge you, and then shoot you, and it's a really, really bad movie. (laughs) It's a really, really bad game. Sure. I think the Angry Video Game Nerd did something on that. He probably did. But of course, there's more to what we're talking about than just full motion video, because what we are going to be talking about in our next couple of episodes is the way that Hollywood invaded Silicon Valley, creating the so-called Sillywood era, a mix of the term silicon and Hollywood. Part of that is the interactive movie story, but that's not the whole story because part of that is also just the very idea that media companies are starting to take more and more notice of what's going on in video games and starting to think that they can be active in the video game space. Part of that was getting involved in interactive movies, but as we'll see over the course of this extended discussion, part of that is just getting involved in the industry generally as well. Now, I think a lot of us have thought of the Sillywood era as not being Silicon Valley, but actually the word silly because Hollywood was silly to get into this. Well, I mean, that's the joke, right? I mean, that's what makes this kind of portmanteau here work so well. Because yes, it did end up being silly. Uh, The video game industry tried to become more like Hollywood. Hollywood tried to become more like the video game industry. And both sides eventually figured out that they shouldn't be doing that. But even though this kind of short-lived period where everyone thought the future of everything was interactive entertainment finally dissipated, there were lasting impacts in terms of how the video game industry was structured and how retail in the video game industry was structured that we have to look at. And obviously, there is that is still the, at least in some circles, the holy grail today of becoming involved with fully immersive interactive entertainment. You see that not just in the latest round of attempts to get into virtual reality, but as you may know, just recently the Netflix series Black Mirror did their Bandersnatch episode where they were trying to make an interactive television experience with a attendant game. Recent at the time of this recording. will still be fairly recent at the time it actually airs. So you still see relics of that era today, and you still see moves towards that type of entertainment today, but at the end of the period, everyone realized that This was not exactly the match made in heaven that they had thought at the start. So this 
sort of romantic get-together between the movie industry and Silicon Valley took place during the 90s, early 2000s, from my recollection. That's when I recall seeing these games. Is that the actual time period? Yeah, I mean, the majority of it was really the early to mid-90s. I mean, you had some remnants of it still carrying forward a few years after that, but where you really see this occurring is in the kind of very, very tail end of the 80s and then through the first part of the 1990s. By the time you get to the Sony PlayStation era and the beginning of 3D graphics acceleration on PCs with 3DFX and NVIDIA and all of that, that's when you kind of see this all starting to dissipate. Okay, to kick this off, who courted who first? Did the uh, movie industry come into Silicon Valley and go, hey guys, it'd be really cool if you did cool stuff for our movies? Or is it more Silicon Valley going, hey movie guys, we got cool transistors? <laughs> well, really, it, it was neither. It was an outgrowth of the development of new technology and the development of interactive entertainment generally. And a lot of that was not being done by, by the video game industry or the movie industry. But some of that new technology that was entering the marketplace was, was very much the impetus for what happened. So you did have the media companies very, very briefly start to get involved in the video game industry before the crash. We've talked about this a little bit before, but companies like 20th Century Fox, CBS, they were starting to explore synergies with the video game industry more and more kind of in the 1982-1983 time period. And then, of course, you had two of the big video game companies, Atari and Sega, that were actually owned by media companies. Atari was owned by Warner Communications and Sega was a subsidiary of Gulf and Western, which also owned Paramount Pictures. So you were starting to see some forming of game studios and some forming of licensing deals in that time period, but the crash really put an end to that. It was kind of over and done. And there really wasn't much that these media companies could do anyway, because we're talking about very limited hardware. We're talking about the Atari 2600, which even in 1982 was exerting far more influence on the marketplace than its relative technology levels should have still been permitting at that point. Even newer systems like the ColecoVision or some of the latest stuff in the arcade wasn't really going to lend itself to the kind of projects that a media company is really interested in. But they were drawn very briefly in by the money because this is a period of time when the video game industry was exploding in terms of profits and the movie industry was somewhat limited uh, in what it could do. This was right before the VCR boom took off. So there really weren't secondary markets yet in movies, other than the occasional deal to show a movie on a network or on cable. So the video game industry revenues were starting to eclipse movie box office. And movie box office was basically all the movie companies had at that time. So naturally, they were drawn to this area particularly after Star Wars had shown just how lucrative licensing can be in general, not just in video games, but in the toy industry and in the bedsheet industry and in the toilet paper industry and Spaceballs, the yogurt doll and all of that. Need us for be with you. <laughs> That's right. So 
that was kind of happening, but but that stopped very quickly just because, you know, the crash wiped anything out in terms of that. After that, even as the market started to recover, when you still had a home computer market, uh, particularly in Europe, and you still had some things going on, the the movie companies, the media companies, they would license their properties to video game developers and video game publishers, but they weren't, for the most part, interested in really being involved. Paramount sold Sega. Warner sold a majority interest in Atari. As we discussed in our Atari episodes, they did keep a minority interest in both Atari companies, Atari Games and Atari Corp. And that's going to come back and play a role in our story here in a little bit. But they got out of it. 20th Century Fox, they closed their video game division. CBS closed theirs. You know, it's kind of that all settled down and they just did the occasional licensing deal here and there. What would really bring the media companies back in, as I said at the top of this monologue, is kind of the changing technology and the changing idea of what video game or more broadly interactive entertainment could be. That story really starts with two things. One of them is the Laserdisc. We talked about Laserdisc games uh, in an episode. We devoted an episode to that. Laserdisc games ended up being a fad. They ended up not working very well for a variety of reasons. And then, of course, the downturn in the arcade industry was was the death knell to any uh, success that that segment of the market could have had. But it was the first time that you got a look at a video game that felt more like a movie, that told a story. Games like Dragon's Lair and Space Ace, they were interactive cartoons. They were barely interactive, but they were very much cartoons. And as you wiggled your joystick this way and that way, various uh, things would happen to advance the plot or send you to a grisly death. That was kind of the beginning point where Hollywood could kind of see there might be something here in a few years, you know? This is storytelling in a vein that is more familiar to us than video game, quote unquote, storytelling at the time, which is basically zombies coming right for you. Shoot them in the head. Press A. (laughs) Press A. Oh, wait, that's modern rendition. This is the Atari. (laughs) Press button. Press button. Button. So the Laserdisc thing was a dead end, but there was another thing that was going on at the same time. At the same time Laserdisc games were first becoming big in the arcade, there was a new form of Laserdisc just coming to market. One that was smaller. One could say was compact, even. A DVD? No. Compact CD? The C in CD stands for compact, so that would be a compact, compact disc. Well, we do call the Sahara Desert. A desert, and Sahara is another word for desert. Okay, then. So, right, of course, it's the the compact disc, or CD. The compact disc was developed kind of jointly, partly independently, partly jointly, by two great electronics giants. Philips, based in the Netherlands, and Sony, based in Japan. They come up with so many interesting little toys, don't they? (laughs) They do, they do. At first, Compact Disc was seen as just a music format. Well, when I say seen, I don't mean that people weren't visionary, but the initial specification 
for a compact disc really only allowed for the playback of audio. CD, unlike video tape recording or video cassette recording, became standardized very early on. And I'm sure that this has to do with the drubbing that Sony received in the uh, VCR format wars in the late 1970s, early 1980s. Uh, As we've talked about sometimes before on the show, Sony was the one that brought the first real practical consumer video cassette recorder to market, that being Betamax. But even though they had the first product and had a product that in some ways, not in every way, but in some ways was technologically superior, certainly had the, the better quality video, if nothing else, they were roundly defeated in the market because a consortium of Japanese companies and elsewhere, but particularly Japanese companies, companies like Matsushita and JVC and all of those got together and created a standard around the VHS method of video cassette recording. And because there was a consortium backing this format, uh, they were able to achieve different economies of scale, different cost reductions. There were also some advantages to the technology from a home user perspective, even though the video quality wasn't quite as good. You could record longer on a single tape, which was certainly something desirable. Long story short, though, is that even though Sony was first to market and had a very good product, they got swamped by the VHS consortium, and Betamax ended up being a dead-end product. It remained very prominent in professional video applications long after VHS won the consumer war, but of course the consumer market is a far more lucrative market than the high-end production market, and so that was little solace to Sony, uh, who found their clocks cleaned in video cassette recording. So they really put a focus to create a consortium around CDs. Exactly. They didn't want to be left out in the cold again, I think. I mean, some of this is speculation on my part, but it's eminently logical speculation. So Sony and Philips were kind of working on this problem independently and came up with solutions independently. But then they combined together to release a standard. And the standard was called the Red Book Standard. There will be many books as we go along. But the Red Book standard was the standard for an audio CD. What this means is that it doesn't matter who is actually encoding the digital information onto this shiny little disc. Whoever is encoding it, they're going to encode it in essentially the exact same way so that any CD reader put out by any company as long as they're participating in the consortium, obviously, is going to play the same. You don't have to worry about whether will my CD run in this or will my CD run in that. Your music CD is going to run in any CD player you buy. This was just the first of many standards that were promulgated together by these two companies. So the next logical step after getting music encoded on CDs is to get data onto CDs generally. And so that's where we get the concept of CD-ROM. Now, today, when somebody says CD-ROM, it's pretty much understood that you're talking about, it's, it's kind of a general term for data CDs. Nobody really uses data CDs anymore now that we have DVDs and Blu-rays and the cloud, but USB flash disk. That's true. But there's an understanding that If you have a disc 
that is not a music CD, that does not just have music on it. It's a CD-ROM. But we have to go back to the early 80s here. CD-ROM is not a term that meant any data disk that was a compact disk. CD-ROM was a specific standard that was created again jointly by Sony and Philips. And uh, I think Matsushita was involved in this as well. Another small Japanese company was actually the first one to make the jump from music CD to data CD. But once that leap was made, the big guys quickly moved in and again did this joint standard. And I'm, I'm sure, again, it's because nobody wanted to repeat the, the format wars around video cassette. And so in 1984, you had the promulgation of the Yellow Book Standard. And the Yellow Book Standard was a standard to encode data onto a CD. And uh, data in this case was essentially limited to text, images, and music, not video. Hmm. And so that was the so-called Yellow Book Standard. And the Yellow Book Standard is what, in common nomenclature, gained the name CD-ROM. The Yellow Book defined CD-ROM. Now, the Yellow Book Standard was just an encoding standard. It wasn't an organizational standard. When you're talking about directories and file trees and how everything is formatted in the same way that you have a formatting in a floppy disk, Yellow Book did not address that. It only addressed the actual putting of the data on. It didn't address the organizing and seeking and finding the data. So uh, very quickly after that, another technology consortium got together and created what was called the High Sierra format, which then remained the standard format. So once you had Yellow Book and you had High Sierra, you basically had the foundation for a universal CD data system in which anyone who wanted to could manufacture a CD drive and anyone who wanted could manufacture CDs and every CD is going to work in every CD drive. That is part of the standard. Again, obviously, video games, uh, as video games adopt CD drives in the late 80s, early 90s, they're doing their own custom formats for their video game systems. But does that mean that they're ignoring the Sierra standard in that case? I don't know. I don't know if it's the file structure they're ignoring or the encoding specification they're, they're ignoring. That's not a tech issue I've gotten into. But I'm just saying it's not like every single data CD-ROM disk and CD-ROM drive in the entire world are going to work together. But Yellow Book and High Sierra kind of created the framework for your CD-ROM drives that later on in the decade would start to be marketed as the integral portion of a multimedia PC. Now, just because there was a kind of basic standard kind of agreed on at this point for how data was encoded doesn't mean that the companies in question, like Sony and Philips, were resting on their laurels and were like, okay, we've got a standard, we're done, this, this works. They were continuing to do what they could to improve the quality here and, and the amount of data and the types of data that could be combined. So Philips then, in 1986, two years later, came up with another standard for data. And this standard was called CDI. It was the Green Book standard, but also called CDI, CD Interactive. Oh, no. Now, so here, there's two things here. So you're remembering, of course, 
the infamous Philips CDI machine. Mm-hmm. The actual multimedia set-top box thing that was ultimately released in the early 1990s and had some interesting Mario and Zelda games on it. To put it mildly. So, obviously, the Philips CDI game machine was built on the Green Book standard. But CDI, the multimedia standard, is different from CDI, the game machine. We have to distinguish here. What we have right now is not a hardware that Sony has built in 1986. What we have is a encoding and file structure standard for doing music, text, graphics, interactivity altogether. That's the Green Book or CDI standard that then Philips decided they were going to incorporate into a hardware system that they also chose to call CDI. Sony actually co-created, again, Sony was part of the consortium that created the Green Book, that created CDI. Sony did not ultimately pursue that technology in the same way that Philips did, obviously, but it wasn't just a Philips thing. It was, again, the consortium getting together. At this point, you still don't have video. You still don't have movies. There's no way to do movies in this format. So what most companies were seeing in the mid-1980s When there started to be CD-ROM conferences, Microsoft was a big booster of CD-ROM conferences. It's like, we have this new expansive format, much more expansive, 650 megabytes of information. And it's a format where we can merge text, audio, and images together. So it's multimedia, which at this point does not include video. The first place the companies naturally go with this is not really entertainment. It's education. It's the idea that you can put an entire encyclopedia on a single disc and that you can read an article on Martin Luther King and you can see a picture as you're reading of Martin Luther King in Washington during his march on Washington. And then you can click on a soundbite and you can hear the I have a dream speech that he gave in Washington. It's in Carta. Right, exactly. It, it is. But again, minus the video, because Encarta did have video as well. Proto-Encarta. Encarta 3.1. Sure. At this point, there really wasn't much you could do with it as a game thing. So Philips came up with the idea of the CDI system as a multimedia system that would essentially allow for basic educational products and basic, uh, you know, I mean, entertainment products where I guess you could have a Mozart CD and you could read about Mozart while you're listening to his music. I mean, that's kind of educational too, but you know, it's all about how can we do text, pictures, music, or sound. So Philips starts developing the CDI system that they think is going to be the future of education. By 1988, it's pretty much ready to come out. And then from a completely different corner of the tech world comes an absolute bombshell. RCA on the East Coast, New Jersey, comes up with Digital Video Interactive, or DVI. And again, DVI, Digital Video Interactive, is not to be confused with what some of you people use to plug your high-definition monitors into your computers. That's the digital video interface 
DVI, which is a completely different DVI. Unlike CDI, standard and machine, there's no connection. The tech world really likes its acronyms. <laughs> exactly. So this is Digital Video Interactive, DVI. Not only does DVI allow for the encoding and compression and decompression of video so that you can play it on a disc or whatever, it's also completely platform agnostic. The DVI circuitry is something that you can incorporate into any hardware platform, any operating system you want. Obviously, the maker of said hardware or said operating system has to put in the, the legwork to make it all talk to each other, but it's not tied to a specific format. So CDI and CD-ROM are two different ways at looking at the encoding of data. They are incompatible with each other. Later on, there's a white book standard. So many rainbow books. They call them the rainbow books. You can see why. Later on, there's a white book standard that makes CD-ROM and CDI cross-compatible. But yellow book and green book are two different ways of looking at the world. They don't cross paths. DVI can be integrated into yellow book. It can be integrated into green book and can be integrated into something completely different. It is platform agnostic. This absolutely kills CDI. CDI was basically done in 1988. It doesn't get released until 1991. And the reason for that is that a multimedia product now that doesn't do video is a worthless product. And because DVI is platform agnostic, they could have incorporated DVI in right away and had video, but it would have so increased the price of the darn thing that it's just a complete and utter moot point. RCA is bought by General Electric pretty much almost immediately after it comes up with DVI. General Electric is not interested in DVI. So the DVI technology in 1988 ends up being sold to Intel Corporation. Intel Corporation, of course, is part of the famed Wintel Alliance, where you have basically Microsoft on the operating system side and Intel on the chip side being the core forces in the further development of the IBM PC compatible market. They are the dominant players there. So, of course, Microsoft jumps on board DVI immediately. And MS-DOS becomes a DVI-compatible format immediately. And so now, at the end of the 1980s, you're first getting this idea of a so-called multimedia PC that's going to have a CD-ROM drive in it with an updated Yellow Book standard that also includes the concept of DVI and video to go along with data, music, and all of that. And you can put this drive into your PC, and your PC will have a nice monitor and nice speakers, and you'll be able to do a multimedia experience in your PC. So that's one part of the story, and that's the birth of what gets called full motion video. Full motion video is a weird term. It doesn't really mean anything. I mean, there is a dictionary definition for full motion video, but all full motion video is is video that moves at a fast enough rate that your eyes can't tell that it's not a series of still images. It's not like half motion video or quarter motion video or three quarters motion video was put out there and said, hi guys, you want to play me, right? Watch the stuttering man go to battle. Right. I mean, you know, pretty much all video is full motion video. In, in the motion picture world, full motion is 24 frames per second. 
when you're syncing to a monitor on a computer or on a video game system, you're usually talking a bare minimum of 30 frames per second. But all it just means is that you are looking at something that appears to be seamless. That's all it means. I mean, there have been some games that have been using technology way ahead of themselves and therefore stutter and lag so much that you couldn't consider them full motion. But Super Mario Brothers is full motion video. I mean, a movie that you go see in a movie theater, Star Wars is full motion video. The term doesn't really mean anything, but it got adopted specifically by the video game industry to essentially mean that you are encoding video, in other words, changing analog video into digital, encoding video, and then running that video through a series of compression and decompression algorithms so that you can fit all your video on a disc and then decompress and play all your video at a high enough frame rate that the eye can't tell that it, you know, that the eye sees it as a seamless process. So in the video game context, it's really about developing the compression and decompression routines that allowed you to get video of a high enough resolution stuck onto a disc. It's a nebulous term. It's not really a specific technical term where you can say, ah, that is full motion video because it runs at this frame rate or has this technology or you see what I'm saying, right? It seems more of a marketing term in my eyes where you have some marketer that goes, Okay, how do I convey to the public that this video game or this media has video in it? It's not like I can go up to them and say, hey, public, would you like to play my new fun game with video? Okay, maybe. Hey, public, would you like to come and check out my new thing with this new, awesome, fancy, improved full motion video that synergizes with you, the consumer, in order to bring (laughs) you a new era of eclectic joy that is unmatched in today's modern era? Well, yes! Give my money! (laughs) Exactly. We'll use the term full motion video to refer to those types of games that have a lot of movie clips and all of that, but just kind of know that It's marketing. Yeah, it's marketing. It's really a meaningless term because all full motion video really means is that you're watching something that you can't tell is a series of still pictures strung together. That's all it is. So that's kind of the technology side. Now we have to take a step back and look at the video game side. Video games, as of course we've discussed many times, and is, which is just apparent by looking at video games, were fairly simple in their graphical and audio presentation in the late 70s, early 80s, and even the mid-80s with things like the NES. You're talking pixel graphics. You're talking something that's very cartoony. You're talking about something that you can't really get something photorealistic going on. I mean, it's always going to look not just cartoony, but even it, it doesn't even look as good as, as cartoons with Laserdisc games aside. I mean, it's just, it's just a bunch of pixels and a bunch of basic colors and not much nuance to it. So not the kind of thing that is really going to excite people in terms of multimedia. There were a few different attempts to do something about that. There were a few different attempts to make video games more cinematic. Less about just press A, press A, press A, and more about let's tell a story, let's borrow cinema conventions, 
and do something more akin to a movie. If anything, if there was any trend in the early 1980s towards moving beyond video games and emulating other forms of entertainment, it was really more geared towards books. Now, I'm not talking about your NES here, obviously, but there was a brief movement after the text adventure became very popular towards so-called bookware, where text adventures were being developed that tied in with famous media properties and you were trying to basically create interactive novels. I mean, some of the companies even marketed these as bookware. We're not talking about Infocom text adventures here, which generally speaking were original properties, but we're talking about the popularity of Infocom text adventures leading book publishers to think that they could kind of do something similar with established properties. That's really the first phase of media companies coming in. We're not going to talk about bookware in this episode. That's really it's a whole different thing from Sillywood. But that just goes to show that the graphics were so primitive in kind of this mid-1980s period that the only media company that saw any synergy were the book people that had no graphics going on in their products at all. <laughs> the first person after the Laserdisc people, we won't talk about Laserdisc because we already did, The first person outside of the Laserdisc people to actually try to take this in a more cinematic direction uh, was actually our good friend Nolan Bushnell of uh, Atari fame. After Nolan Bushnell was booted out of Atari, he did Chuck E. Cheese, which we talked about, of course. We had a whole episode devoted to Chuck E. Cheese. After the Chuck E. Cheese thing fell apart, he basically became a technology incubator. I think he started it while Chuck E. Cheese was still going on, but he had a company set up that was essentially a technology incubator. He called it Catalyst Technologies. It was a period of time when this concept was not common yet. It's more common now, but basically he set up an organization that had a lot of money, some of his own money, some money that he got from investors. And then if you had an idea that he thought was a cool idea, he would provide you office space. He would provide you... A company, I mean, maybe an off-the-shelf company, maybe he'd just help you file the articles of incorporation on your own company, but he'd provide you a company, he'd provide you an office space, and then he'd be invested in your company and your product, and then you would go off and try to develop whatever cool thing you were trying to develop, and hopefully that thing takes off, and then you sell the company for lots of money to somebody or decide that this is now my company and and take it over and, and ride the wave. So, you know, not venture capital, but you know, technology incubation. So he had Catalyst. And Catalyst had a lot of different companies, but one of those companies was Axlon. Axlon was a kind of high-tech toy company. We've talked about uh, Worlds of Wonder before, Teddy Ruxpin, laser tag. This was a period of time kind of in the early 1980s that technology was seen as a very integral part of the toy industry going forward. You'd had a few things in the 70s, like the very famous speak and spell from Texas Instrument. But it was a period of time when more and more toys were starting to get microchips embedded in them, starting to get circuitry in them, starting to be, quote unquote, high tech. Robots in particular were a big thing. The idea of little toy robots, not robots that are going to cause the robot apocalypse and kill us all. So Axlon had a toy robot product. They had success with some kind of walkie-talkie things they did for play school. They had a, a big success with that. And they had their own talking bear, AG Bear. It was not a Teddy Ruxpin ripoff. And 
fact, in some ways, it was a more advanced product than Teddy Ruxpin. It, it was capable of doing more because Teddy Ruxpin was not a real robotic toy. Basically, you put a tape in the back and then the mouth movements of the toy and maybe the occasional eye movement were just synchronized to the tape. A.G. Bear had a few more capabilities in that. It was a little more interactive. But because Teddy Ruxpin hit so big, A.G. Bear was kind of just seen as a Teddy Ruxpin clone and never did anything. People in this case wanted the simpler toy because the simpler toy was more effective in doing what it wanted to do, which was tell stories. And you could pretty much just throw any old tape in there and just have the bear tell you a story. Exactly. So uh, it's tempting to call A.G. Bear like a Teddy Ruxpin knockoff, but it's really not. And nor was Teddy Ruxpin an A.G. Bear knockoff. It's just this was a period of time when a lot of companies were experimenting with how can we make toys more interactive and more electronic. And so two people came up with bear toys at around the same time because teddy bears are a popular thing. The company had had uh, one big success with this play school thing. They'd had a couple of things that didn't really pan out very well. And uh, around this time, they hired an individual named Tom Zito into the company. Tom Zito was a reporter. He had come up uh, with the Washington Post. He had started as their rock and roll critic back in the late 60s. Then after he got sick of writing about rock and roll, he just ran, as he put it, his own self. He ran out of adjectives. It's like there are only so many ways you can review rock concerts and review albums before you've used every word you know 50 times and everything sounds the same. He was burned out, and he'd also suffered some hearing damage because he went to a lot of rock concerts. He decided uh, he didn't want to do that anymore, and so he became a general assignment reporter at the Washington Post. In the early 80s, around 1984, I believe, he was assigned to profile Nolan Bushnell, because Nolan Bushnell was still a, a person of interest. He was still a celebrity. He had his catalyst company. Chuck E. Cheese had just blown up on him spectacularly, so he'd been in the news. So Zito was assigned to do this profile of Nolan Bushnell, and they ended up really hitting it off. Bushnell. He gets a lot of flack, but we have to remember Bushnell was a very, very charismatic individual, and he was very good at presenting a vision. Some of his visions worked out, some of them didn't, but he was always very good at presenting his vision. Anyone I've talked to that was at Atari in the early days just talk about what a force Nolan was. You know, I think Malcolm Kuhn, the former sales director of the consumer division, put it best when he said, you know, he's a guy we'd jump off a cliff for. Nolan really, really inspired that kind of personal loyalty to what he was doing. He was very effective in that way. And Zito, kind of, he was a reporter, but he was kind of a hustler type, and he had gone to film school. He was kind of an aspiring filmmaker type, even though he ended up going into the newspaper business instead. And he was a guy that liked hobnobbing. He was a guy that liked being at the center of things. And so they just kind of clicked with each other. Nolan Bushnell was impressed with his hustle and his moxie. Zito was impressed with Bushnell's vision and, and all of this. And so he ends up coming to work for Axlon as a marketing guy. He leaves the newspaper business. So Zito's from New York. So in the fall of 1985, Zito returns home on vacation or on business or whatever to New York City. And he goes into a, a camera store that, that he frequents and he sees these kids clustered around this thing. So he goes over and takes a closer look. And this thing is apparently something called the Nintendo Entertainment System. 
I wouldn't go anywhere. It just so happens, because this is fall 1985, we may recall uh, from several other episodes that in fall 1985, Nintendo did a limited test market of the NES in New York City before they launched it in other places. So that was literally the only place in the United States, unless you were somebody with some really strange connections and you had imported a Famicom from Japan, where you could play, see and play, and Nintendo Entertainment System was New York City. And Tom Zito happened to be back, because he's based West Coast, to see this system on display in one of the stores that carried it. So he's like, well, that's interesting. I mean, he's been around Bushnell. He, he clearly has to know about the legacy of the video game industry, uh, short-lived as it is at this point. He can tell by the way these kids are clustered around it that this is probably going to be a big thing. This is going to be a big deal. It looks good. It plays good. Kids love it. Goes back to Nolan Bushnell and says, there's this thing, this Nintendo Entertainment System. I think it's going to be big, but you know what? It's pretty darn primitive. I bet we can do something better. Because remember, they're at Axelon. They're at this high-technology toy company. So it's within their purview. And obviously, Bushnell's been involved in video games before. They know, they know all about this stuff, right? Maybe. Well, you know, in theory. <laughs> so Bushnell agrees, and they decide that they're going to create a video game system that is far more advanced than the NES. It's going to be a Nintendo killer. NES hasn't really even launched yet, but, you know, they think that they can take this sucker out. I think they form a new company at this point. I don't think it's under the purview of Axelon. There's some confusion in the companies. At some point, a company called ISIX comes into to being ISIX. I'm not sure if this is formed right away or if they start under Axelon. But they decide that they're going to do something more advanced. And the way they're going to do something more advanced is they're going to do something that incorporates more realistic video. What is essentially full motion video in the marketing hype sense. But this is the mid-1980s, so the concept of full motion video doesn't exist yet. What Bushnell comes up with, at least uh, the book Generation Xbox credits this to Bushnell, maybe Zito came up with it. It can be difficult sometimes to determine in any venture that Nolan Bushnell was part of what ideas strictly originated with him and what ideas he was just building on from people in his employ. But we'll say it's Bushnell. Why not? Bushnell comes up with the idea that the clear, cool way to do this would be through cable. This isn't the first time someone's come up with the idea of doing something through cable. The very first system, uh, we may recall, I think we mentioned it in our Odyssey episode, that team, even back in the late 60s, it initially thought that they might incorporate a cable signal in some way into what they're doing. But what Bushnell was seeing, he was seeing something akin to, to interactive television, where everybody gets together at a particular time to play a game that's essentially an interactive television episode. Didn't they do that in Japan with Zelda? I mean, sort of, but I mean, when you're talking about something like the satellite view that, that Bandai did in Japan, you are talking about everyone like logging on at a specific time or within a specific time window to download a game and play a game. So yeah, that element of it is very similar to the satellite view. But what they envisioned was really what we would today call an interactive movie where basically they're broadcasting something that features real people or realistic environments and all of that and then gives you moments in the broadcast where you can influence what's going on. So it's a little different from the Zelda thing. I suppose it's a little similar to uh, Mattel's attempt at an interactive television toy line, which was Captain Power, which 
uh, never actually went anywhere. But the original idea of Captain Powers, you had the toys and then you were watching the Captain Power videos on the television and you could shoot at targets on the television and the targets at the television could shoot back at you and using technology that I haven't researched. But, you know, interactive television kind of interaction there, though this would not include toys in the same way that the Captain Power project included toys. And so he thought that they could do like live cable broadcasts where everyone sits down and does this, and then they could later release these on video cassette and have people then be able to play anything that they missed or anything that they liked so much they would want to play it again in a secondary video cassette market. So the, the cable TV part of this never goes anywhere, but the idea of games on video cassette takes off. Again, so we're we're back in time a little bit. This is 1986, 1987. This is right before DVI. This is right before you can do video with a compact disc. That's really not an option. You can't do full motion video with ROM memory because you don't have the capacity. You don't have the circuitry. You can't do it on CD yet because even though CD you have the capacity, you don't have DVI. You don't have a an encoding and, and compression, decompression format that allows you to do that. So while they're coming up with this, they're thinking cable TV and videotape and then end up focusing on the videotape. They decide to pursue this videotape idea. They'll need a partner for that, though. Their startup costs. They have to put together a whole new team that's going to build a whole new hardware and do all of these games. So they end up partnering with Hasbro. Hasbro was the one toy company of any significance that did not enter the video game industry in the late 1970s, early 1980s. Kenner Parker got involved. Milton Bradley got involved. Mattel got involved. All the biggies got involved except for Hasbro. And the reason for that is that Hasbro was not doing well in the late 1970s, early 1980s. They had just kind of fallen apart a bit. You know, their main line had been G.I. Joe, and G.I. Joe had kind of died in the anti-war movement Vietnam stuff. They tried to reinvent G.I. Joe as a line of adventurers as opposed to military personnel, and that just didn't work. So G.I. Joe was in the doldrums. Uh, They didn't really have any other big lines, and they were starting to fall apart as a company a bit. It ended up being a good thing for them that they couldn't get involved in the video game industry in the late 1970s, early 1980s, because all of those companies that did get involved suffered mightily as a result. It was the beginning of the end for Coleco. It was the beginning of the end for Milton Bradley. It was a little bit the beginning of the end for Kenner Parker as an independent entity, and it would have meant the end of Mattel if Michael Milken hadn't invested a bunch of money in it. So Hasbro comes out of the video game era looking good because they didn't get involved. And believe me, they would have if they could have. Then, of course, in 1982, they come up with a viable plan to relaunch G.I. Joe. It's a new era. Cold War is heating up again. You have Reagan, rah, rah, go military. And suddenly the military is kind of cool again, and they're able to relaunch it as a three and three quarters action figure line after the Kenner Star Wars toys had done so well. And after that, a couple of years later, they license several lines of robot toys from the Japanese company Takara that turn into cars and airplanes and all of these things. And they kind of unify these different toy lines under a single brand that they call Transformers. So now 
with G.I. Joe and Transformers becoming absolutely huge in the mid-1980s. Hasbro is on top of the toy world. And so they're now in a position where they can kind of explore this video game market that they failed to get into the first time around. They're impressed with the play school, walkie-talkie kind of things that Axlon had done. So they knew that Axlon kind of had a track record of doing some okay stuff. So they agreed to back this project for this video cassette based video game system. The system ends up going under the code name Nemo, N-E-M-O. There's a couple of references there. There's Captain Nemo from 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. There's Little Nemo, which was a kind of European comics character. So they may have pulled some information from some of those sources in terms of coming up with the name, but it was an acronym that specifically, I don't know if it was decided that this acronym would stand for this from the beginning or it was a clever thing they came up with a little later, but the acronym NEMO officially meant never, ever mention outside. (laughs) Top, top secret project. Because this is going to be their Nintendo killer. They felt that they were doing the next generation of video games. You had these very cartoony, very simple graphics on the NES. I mean, they're much better than the Atari, but they're still fairly simple. Even the Master System that has slightly better graphics than the NES is still considered very primitive, very cartoony. They're going to do the next big wave, and they don't want anyone catching on because they feel they've got something unique that nobody else has figured out. According to retrospective interviews, which are going to be a bit self-interested, there are a few different things that that happen after this project starts, and a little bit of finger-pointing in this and that. According to Zito, Hasbro became uncomfortable with Nolan Bushnell being involved in the project. You know, at this point, Catalyst Technology has been around for a few years. Nothing's really broken out in a big way. Before that, there was Chuck E. Cheese, which failed. Before that, there was Atari, which did not fail under Nolan's watch, but Nolan was forced out of Atari. According to Zito, Hasbro was not really comfortable with Bushnell having any kind of role in this thing. Now, I mean, Zito was the main guy involved. He was the one in charge of this ISIC's company or whatever. But, you know, Bushnell was still over top of it through Catalyst Technologies and Axlon and, and all of that kind of thing. According to him, they came to him, Hasbro came to him and said, we want to continue this project. We like this project, but only if Nolan Bushnell is not involved. So we want to buy this project. We want to bring it in-house. We still want you to be responsible for development. We still want your team doing it. We're not just buying the technology. But we don't want Nolan Bushnell involved. Nolan Bushnell feels that Zito sold him out because Zito didn't, you know, wanted full control and everything. Who knows? It's probably somewhere between the two. But the point is Hasbro ends up buying the project, bringing it in-house. Bushnell's involvement done at this point. Zito still in charge of development. Hasbro guy named Barry Alperin is put in charge of the project on the corporate end, but Zito's still running the day-to-day. Bushnell and Zito also kind of disagree on what kind of content should be on the system, at least according to retrospective interviews. Bushnell wanted them to take advantage of this to have very, very high-quality state-of-the-art graphics, you know, similar to what the LaserDisc systems did in that regard. But he didn't really want the involvement of Hollywood. He wanted them to make all of their own stuff. Zito wanted to get Hollywood involved. Zito's kind of logic for that was that, you know, we're doing a system that can do photorealism where we can actually shoot footage and then incorporate that footage on on the video cassette tape. Mm -hmm. 
And so it only stands to reason that we would get Hollywood involved and get Hollywood properties involved and Hollywood producers and directors and all of that involved and actors involved in this process. They know how to do video. Yeah. Bushnell, uh, at least according to retrospective interviews, he says that he disagreed because he knew that that was going to make everything that much more expensive. He'd been in that world, albeit briefly, because Atari had been part of Warner Communications. And he felt that if you go to Hollywood, you know, you're paying half a million dollars back when that was considered a whole lot of money. Uh, you're paying half a million dollars just to get in the door, just to get a handshake. And that's before you get licensing fees figured out and union scale for everybody and this and that. And he just thought that that would be way too expensive. And he sees Zito as a as a schmoozer. He thinks that Zito really only wanted to do that. And I'm just repeating what Bushnell said in interviews. I'm not taking a side here. But in his view, it, he was just kind of a schmoozer that liked being around celebrities and wanted to associate with those people and was less about making the best quality product possible as opposed to just being able to say, hey, I'm hobnobbing with all these stars. Again, I'm sure the truth is somewhere in the middle. I don't think Zito was probably entirely motivated by that. He very well may have been a schmoozer. After all, he was a reporter. He was a rock critic. You have to be something of a schmoozer to succeed in that kind of business. So I wouldn't surprise me at all if he liked hanging around with those kinds of people and liked being associated with those kinds of people. But I do also think that he really did believe that using this kind of technology and we can shoot this kind of footage, then let's bring in the people that have been doing this kind of thing for a long time. However it goes, they decide to get involved with Hollywood. This is before the Sillywood era, but this is kind of the earliest example of let's combine video game talent and Hollywood talent. It's not the first time Hollywood's been involved in video games, obviously. There's been licensing, there's been 20th Century Fox Interactive, there's been whatever else. But this isn't just licensing, this is let's get actors from Hollywood, let's get special effects people from Hollywood. Dragon Slayer kind of did that in the sense that you had Don Bluth, an animator, being involved in the production. But Don Bluth himself was kind of an outsider from Hollywood, you know, really only took on that project because uh, his studio was going bankrupt. This is kind of the first time where two sides are sort of feeling each other out as kind of equals. It's a bit of a stretch to call them complete equals, but this this is kind of a watershed moment, which is why we're spending kind of time on this proto Sillywood story of the Nemo system. So he's got a bunch of technical guys. He's got some former Atari people, David Crane's working there, uh, who was co-founder of Activision, created Pitfall. He's got Rob Fulop there, who was a co-founder of Imagic and who created uh, the hit game Demon Attack and was former Atari before that. Steve Russell, uh, one of the space war creators, was there very briefly. He's the only space war creator that ever did anything with video games after space war. This was the one thing he did, but he was not involved really for all that long. And they're starting to think, okay, well, we're going to do Hollywood. We're going to do whatever. We're going to do these kind of movie things. But how do you make the gameplay work? That was the trick. They couldn't figure out how to make compelling gameplay. I mean, you can do the Dragon's Lair approach, right? Where a scene is playing out and you jiggle your controller and the way you jiggle your controller determines what the next scene is that loads. You can do that, right? And they do end up doing that. They end up doing a game called Sewer Shark, which is basically you hurtling down these tunnels and shooting at stuff and every so often there's forks in the tunnel and you have to decide 
which way you move to get to the next part of the tunnel system. They end up doing that. John Dykstra, who was one of the principal special effects guys on Star Wars, ends up being the director of that project. They go down to Hawaii and actually shoot footage in Hawaii. They do all that. But, you know, they know that that isn't the greatest because the Laserdisc things happened. They've seen that rise and fall. So how do you make this kind of gameplay compelling? And they finally got their answer to that from a play in Los Angeles. In the 80s and early 90s, there was this play that ran in Los Angeles called Tamara. The way this worked is they actually they had this entire building that they had taken over. It's not a play on a stage. They had taken over this entire building, and they had a multi-threaded plot with various subplots all going on over a fixed period of time. All of the actors had their character that would go here, there, everywhere, and have their interactions with other characters and come to their own separate climaxes to their subplots and everything. The audience was free to move around the building however they wanted. They had to choose. You couldn't watch the whole play because you have multiple subplots going on at once. But you could choose which subplot you wanted to follow that day. Or bounce between subplots if for some reason you wanted to do that. It wouldn't be as coherent, but you could. You could move around the entire building freely as the play is going on and choose how you experienced it and all of its multiple subplots. This was perfect for the Nemo system. And the reason it was perfect for the Nemo system is that one of the main technologies they were using to make this viable as interactive entertainment is that they were jumping between tracks on the VHS tape. I mean, when you're just watching a movie from start to finish, you're just watching one track start to finish. But a VHS tape can have more than one track on it, just like an eight-track player or whatever else. You can have multiple tracks there. It's just when you're just watching a movie, you don't need multiple tracks to have that experience. You can just have it all on one track. The way the Nemo worked to make the interactivity portion is it would jump between the tracks on the tape, on the magnetic tape. So if you're playing Sewer Shark, for instance, and you're hurtling down this tunnel and you come to a fork in the tunnel and you make your choice, if you choose one direction, it jumps to one track. If you choose the other direction, it jumps to a different track and then it continues on in sequence. So the different tracks of the Tamara play were akin to the different tracks on the video cassette tape that they were using. And as Rob Fulop put it in interviews, it was the first time that they found a format that just made sense. This is something that our system can do that is new and fresh and potentially engaging. So they start creating a game that is based around this idea of multiple tracks happening at once and you jumping between the different scenes come to a resolution. They start by doing a, a small demo. This is never released, but a small demo called Scene of the Crime, which is basically a Tamara-style murder mystery playing out on the machine. That's kind of their proof of concept. Once they get that going and decide, okay, this kind of works, they uh, get a writer in and they start creating another game, a game involving a sleepover and some people that want to become vampires. Okay. This should be starting to sound familiar now, at least to some people. Not me. But do continue. 
And the conceit they come up with is that there's this sleepover with these girls, and then there's these vampire wannabes that are going to come and, and drain their blood for reasons, and that you are part of an organization that is sending someone undercover to the sleepover to find the vampires and stop them. You're not the person doing the undercover work, but you are the person that is manning the security system that has been surreptitiously placed in this house and monitoring everything that's going on to see where the vampires are at any given time and springing traps to prevent them from killing everybody. The title they come up for this game is Night Trap. Hmm. It's at night. There's going to be some traps. I get to set them off and kill some vampires. Potentially good. They get some professional Hollywood talent in. It's, it's B-list talent. But, I mean, they get a DP that later, a director of photography that later works on Forrest Gump and other movies like that. They get Dana Plato to have the leading role. She's a legitimate popular actress that was popular on the television show Different Strokes. She's hit a low point in her career. She's not an A-list celebrity anymore. She had drug problems and all of this and was really at a low point. So they weren't getting A-list talent. But they were getting solid B-list talent, and they were getting real Hollywood people to put this together. So they create this game, uh, Night Trap. After that, I talked about it first just because it's a simpler game, but then after that, they also create this game, Sewer Shark, that is more in the traditional Laserdisc kind of mode of jiggle your controller and something happens. So they've got some game ideas. They get these things in the can, and then something very, very disastrous happens. The price of RAM skyrockets. In the history of computer technology, because of the function of Moore's Law, stuff generally tends to get cheaper over time. And that has definitely been true in the case of RAM. Almost throughout the entire history of random access memory, all the way back to when solid-state memories were first invented in the late 1960s, the trend has always been for the price of RAM to go down. Keyword there being trend. <laughs> but in this one period in 1988, the price of RAM went way, way up. Won't go into the full details of this, but basically what happened is there was a home computer boom in the early 1980s. The home computer boom stopped. People were buying RAM, buying RAM, buying RAM, so there was a scarcity. So manufacturers were upping their output, upping their output, upping their output. And then suddenly, because the home computer bubble burst, RAM sales stopped, and there was an oversupply on the market. So the Japanese started essentially dumping the product, dumping RAM at below market price to just clear it out and relying on the strength of other products they were doing to, you know, bulk up the losses. But they started basically dumping the product in the United States which created a real crisis. It started driving the American companies out of business. This was the period of time where RAM production basically started shifting from the United States to Japan, where it still basically, I think, remains to this day. And it was because they were dumping product at below prices and uh, the U.S. companies couldn't compete. Well, the U.S. responded by putting some, some tariffs and some trade penalties, I'm not sure if it was tariffs, but trade penalties on the Japanese restricting their ability to bring that product in at that price. The American companies responded by going to the next level up. Uh, 256 kilobyte RAM chips were kind of the primary chips that were coming out at the time. So the American companies decided they'd upgrade and start producing more 512K chips and even up to one megabyte chips. 
Can you imagine that, Jeff? One whole megabyte of RAM on a single chip? I'm sure my 286 might remember that. What a crazy world we live in. The problem was that the technology was new, the yields were lower, the prices were higher, and the demand wasn't quite there yet. So the market stopped producing essentially the 256K chips, went to the high-level chips, but they were too expensive and not as many people were buying them. People still wanted the 256K chips, which were no longer available in sufficient quantities. Long story short, the price of RAM just like blew up, doubling, tripling, quadrupling. It was insane. Hasbro thought that the Nemo system showed a lot of potential and thought that there was an interesting product in there somewhere. But because of the RAM shortage and the increasing cost of RAM, they would have to sell it for $250, a system, in, you know, 1988-1989 money, in order to make that work. Uh, By example, the NES was about $105 at that time, over double the price. Almost two and a half times. Exactly, of the Nintendo Entertainment System. They thought that at $200, they had something that could work, because in their mind, it was more advanced than the NES. But at $250, they just could not see a market there. The product was basically all ready to go. I mean, I I don't think they were literally about ready to put it on the production line, but it was essentially finished as a product. And they canned the whole thing because they just could not make the price work. It wasn't just the RAM shortage, but a big part of that was the RAM shortage. So just like that, Nemo is, is gone. Tom Zito has the foresight to say, okay, well, okay, if you guys aren't going to do anything with this, I want to buy the rights to everything back. And Hasbro's like, yeah, we're never going to do anything with this. Go ahead. So Tom Zito buys the rights back to everything and then just sticks it in a warehouse. Never to be heard from again. Or will it? We don't know. (laughs) More on that story later. So that's kind of the first attempt to do something akin to full motion video. Uh, They weren't calling it full motion video then, and it was really never practical. I don't think that VCR thing would have ever worked. There was a period of time where people thought VCR games were kind of the future, not just in video games, but in board games. There was VCR versions of Clue released, for instance, and all of that stuff ended up just not working. It's probably just as well for Hasbro that they couldn't get the price point down, because I think it would have been a huge flop. But I like playing Atmosphere. (laughs) Yeah, but this was kind of the first attempt to do that, but you really needed CD, right? Video cassette just wasn't going to hack it. It was just too limited in what you could do with it, but it, it was a try. It was a try. So that's the FMV side of things. At the same time, you have another force coming into focus, and that's the concept of interactive movies. Night Trap was essentially what we would call an interactive movie, but Zito didn't come up with that term. The company that came up with the idea of the interactive movie, even though it did not involve video, was the company that was initially founded as Master Design Software, but is far more famously known as Cinemaware. Cinemaware was the brainchild of an individual named Bob Jacobs, and like Tom Zito, and and this is a trend with kind of the early building blocks of moving towards movies, Bob Jacob was essentially a frustrated filmmaker. I mean, he had never made films, but he kind of, he wanted to be involved with filmmaking, but he didn't really have an in with that. 
1982, Bob and his wife Phyllis moved from Chicago to L.A. And during this time, he really first kind of discovers video games, computer games, arcade games, big into arcade games and all of this. And is kind of blown away from this. He sees this as a new form of, of entertainment, a new way of doing something similar to movies. He learns a little bit about the industry and learns a little bit about the people involved in the industry and discovers that a lot of the talent in this industry, your programmers primarily, are these nerdy types that aren't necessarily very savvy when it comes to business and negotiating deals. So he decides to become an agent for video game developers. He's not the only one to come up with this around this time. There are a couple of people that come up with the same idea because the industry is getting bigger and bigger. But he decides he'll be an agent, getting uh, developers lined up with publishers. And he does this for several years. He becomes a deal broker between developers and, and publishers. Well, then he decides he wants to become even more involved because, like I said, he's this frustrated wannabe filmmaker. He sees the Commodore Amiga because one of the deals he brokers is with a company called Island Graphics that was going to make a graphics program for the Amiga. And then they ended up having a disagreement and Commodore dropped the contract, but Island Graphics still had this product and they needed to do something with it. So he brokers the deal to get Island Graphics another publisher for their graphical program. But he sees one of the early Amiga prototypes as a result of this. And he realizes that now you have the graphical capabilities, because for its time, the Amiga had just absolutely amazing graphics and sound as well, for that matter. You had the graphics and sound capabilities to now do something that felt more cinematic. Now, we're not talking about full motion video. We're not talking about what Tom Zito was doing with his VHS tapes, and we're not talking about what RCA was doing with DVI. We're still talking about pixel graphics, but we have high enough resolution enough colors, and some really great graphical effects for moving things on the screen that we can now do something that feels more movie-like. And so he decides, now's the time I'm going to jump in and become a game development company. And so he establishes uh, Master Design in 1984, which uh, then later takes on the name Cinemaware. He makes a deal with Mindscape to be his publisher, because he's a developer. And you see, Cinemaware was going to be the label. Master Design Software was the developer, and Mindscape was going to release their games under the Cinemaware label. And then he hoped to maybe have other labels. But since the early games were developed under the Cinemaware label, and that's the thing that people came to know, he's just like, well, now we'll call the company Cinemaware. His plan was to design the games in-house, to bring in a designer, and then farm out the actual creation of the games. So uh, he brought in a friend of his named Kellen Beek, who was working as an acquisitions guy for Epics, video game publisher, that he had gotten to know because he had fed product to Epics. Kellen Beek, even though he was kind of uh, on the managerial side, kind of wanted to be a game designer. That was uh, a goal of his, and he wasn't able to do that in his current role. So Jacob lured him to master design by saying you can design games. So then Kellen Beek came up with design documents for projects, and then they would hire other development companies to actually create the games, do the programming, create the art assets, and all of that based on the design documents that Kellen Beek put together. 
So he was kind of continuing to fulfill that same agent role that he had been fulfilling before. But instead, you know, he's got kind of a development company. He's taking a slightly more active role. His goal with the Cinemaware line particularly, and since Cinemaware becomes so popular, Cinemaware kind of takes over the whole identity of the company, is that he's going to take classic Hollywood movie genres and make them interactive. He's going to have these great, elaborate, brilliant Amiga visuals. He's going to have plots. And then he's going to have mini games interspersed amongst these cutscenes and everything else in order to move the story along, you know, with action. So it's going to be a combination of stunning visuals and mini games linked together by a plot drawn from a classic Hollywood genre. Uh, some of the first ones they come up with are mobster stuff, you know, like gangster movies. They come up with old science fiction serial kind of ideas, and they come up with the kind of swashbuckling Robin Hood kind of idea. The Robin Hood style game that Kellen Beek kind of pulls together is uh, the game Defender of the Crown. Are you familiar with Defender of the Crown? I am not familiar with it. I think I've heard it at some point and kind of conflate it with the King's Quest series. Yeah, it's very different. But uh, I think I've heard the name, but I don't really know much about it. It was kind of a risk-like strategy game. It takes place in kind of Robin Hood era England, where you have the Normans that have conquered England, and you have Saxon lords and Saxon peasants that are kind of upset at the Normans and want to kick them out. And so England is divided into these various regions that are very risk-like, and there are a couple of Saxon lords and there's some Norman lords, and they're all kind of vying for power amongst each other. That's kind of the strategic game. But then there's these little action mini-games that are interspersed throughout. You can go do jousts. You can rescue fair maidens uh, who then thank you. You can uh, storm castles. You can do all of these little action-y things in between. And the idea is to kind of capture the milieu of the Robin Hood thing and, and the old uh, classic Errol Flynn Robin Hood movie from the 30s. All of that fun stuff. So you have these brilliantly drawn locations, graphical locations, because the Amiga can portray some pretty stunning graphics for the time. And you have these arcade mini games and you have kind of you're trying to evoke the feel of this time period. Uh, The game is farmed out to a company called Sculptured Software, along with another game called SDI. And Sculptured ends up kind of dropping the ball on it. And so they bring in uh, one of the actually people that helped create the Amiga, RJ McCall, to program everything at the last minute and get the game out the door. And uh, Defender of the Crown ends up being a huge hit. It's somewhat slight as a game, but it was so stunning visually. I mean, we'll definitely be sure to not just put the game in the show notes, but put the opening kind of cinematic in the show notes. Again, you just have to put yourself back in the mindset of 1986. I mean, it may not look like anything particularly special today, but in 1986, it was stunning. Compare it to the Nintendo. That's pretty much something that came out around the same time, and that's what your competition is. Precisely. Defender of the Crown did very well. Cinemaware games after that sometimes did okay, sometimes didn't. They were kind of hit or miss. They were kind of uneven in their difficulty levels. The mini games didn't always tie together artfully with the overarching story. They're problematic games to a degree. But it's 
one of the first times on the pure video game side where we, I mean, he called them, I'm pretty sure he called them interactive movies. This was kind of where the first idea, even though it wasn't the first thing in practice to do it, because Dragon's Lair was essentially an interactive movie. But this was the first time that the terminology was there. Cinema where interactive movie games and movies together. This is kind of where that idea kind of takes hold. Probably the most successful of these kind of cinemaware games, successful not in financial terms, but in terms of being a game that kind of worked, was their monster movie game, It Came from the Desert. This came a a few years after Defender of the Crown when Jacob realized that he would need more in-house talent. I mean, they still farmed out some stuff, but After the Defender of the Crown fiasco, he started bringing more people into the Cinemaware company to oversee development more. And one of the people that came in was a guy named David Riordan. Riordan had first become enamored with Laserdiscs back around 1980 or so when he saw this virtual tour of, I think, Aspen that was being put together by uh, some MIT people. And it was a Laserdisc thing, like I said, but not Laserdisc like Dragon's Lair. I mean, it was hooked up to a big mainframe computer. And you could take a virtual tour of Aspen. I mean, you know, it was real footage. It wasn't cartoony or or digitized or whatnot. He was blown away by that. And he ended up becoming a consultant with Lucasfilm. And he told George Lucas all about this. And he's like, oh, it's amazing. And oh, my gosh. And and Lucas was basically like, oh, that's great. But uh, what kind of hardware was needed to run that? he was like, oh, well, it was kind of this big computer. And Lucas is basically like, well, it's a little far away from a consumer product then, isn't it? And he was like, yeah, I guess so. But he, he remains enamored with this whole thing. I mean, this is, again, another guy that is intersecting with the technology world and the movie-making world in, in a way that's, that's very interesting. He ends up working on some Laserdisc stuff, and then he ends up actually, I believe he even ends up at uh, Tom Zito's company at the Nemo Project for a very short period of time. And then he learns about Cinemaware, and even though Cinemaware doesn't have the fidelity of of the Laserdisc stuff, he's still attracted to Cinemaware because they're kind of doing what he's been thinking about in his head with all this Laserdisc thing about merging together the Hollywood thing and the interactive entertainment thing. So he has an interview with Jacob, and Jacob asks, well, you know, what, what kind of ideas do you have? And he was like, well, I was thinking something like one of those old B- Monster movies, you know, things like them with the ants and stuff. According to Riordan, you know, Jacob said, that's the one genre I hadn't thought of. You're hired. And so he creates this game uh, featuring giant ants called It Came From The Desert. It works pretty effectively as a game in a way some of the others don't because there's a lot of disconnect in a lot of the other games between the various mini games and the overarching plot. But the way It Came From The Desert is structured is you're in this desert town out in the middle of nowhere. And the ants are coming, but nobody believes that they're coming. You know, you kind of have to convince the town that they're about to be under this imminent attack, and you have to slowly win them over so that they help organize defenses and actually stop the ants. So it plays out over a a limited period of time. You have a limited number of turns or whatever to accomplish this. And the mini games that are interspersed throughout kind of involve, you know, the ants are encroaching closer and closer. So you're going out fighting ants, you're gathering evidence, and as these mini games play out, then you're able to go and interact more with the townsfolk and slowly bring them around to your side. So it, it like it's a complete package in a way that a game like Defender of the Crown just kind of wasn't. 
Um, you know, it's later in Cinemaware's life, so I don't think it sells as well as Defender of the Crown, which sold as much on its novelty. It was one of the very first Amiga games and one of the very first games to show the graphical prowess of the Amiga. It's kind of the closest, it gets the closest to the ideal that Jacob had of merging a Hollywood-style plot with interactive gameplay. So by 1990 or so, give or take, you have technology with DVI and Yellow Book and CD-ROM and all of that. You have technology that now allows you to essentially run video, interactive video, on a computer, on a multimedia PC. You have early experiments by video game companies to merge movie plots, movie conventions, movie structure with interactivity through things like the Nemo Project that doesn't see the light of day and the Cinemaware games, which do see the light of day. You have video games generally becoming more popular. You know, the NES is gaining more and more steam and video games are selling more and more. And so you have media companies, movie companies and the like, seeing those royalties they're collecting on video game licenses go up and up and up. A good example of this, for instance, is the Batman game that Sunsoft did on the NES in 1989. Batman was the movie of 1989. I mean, it was humongous. The Batman video game was also then therefore humongous. They sold like 2 million copies of the thing. Warner Brothers can't help but take notice of how much revenue they're getting from that. There's a RoboCop game that Ocean does and sublicenses today to East for the NES. The RoboCop games do huge business. Orion Pictures can't help but take notice of that. So you've got the technology, you've got the will on the side of the video game industry to become more movie-like, and now you have the movie companies taking notice that there is a lot of money to be made here, and by merely licensing their product to other companies, they are leaving a lot of money on the table. This creates the perfect storm to create this attempt to merge the Hollywood experience with the video game experience and leads to the birth of this kind of insane period of Sillywood. And that is where we will take up the story in part two of this look at how Hollywood and Silicon Valley tried to get together and hijinks ensue. We certainly covered a foundation. Now on to watch the full movie crash and burn. Next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com where we have links to some of the things that we discussed in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com Alex's forthcoming book will be released through CRC Press. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com Our Twitter is TCWpodcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward found at joshwoodward.com forward slash song forward slash airplane mode used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Rolla Music, found at freemusicarchive.org, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. <laughs>